Part twenty two of Washington and the Riddle of Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some Stifled Voices. Washington, December six. I do not think my outline sketch of the Washington Conference will be complete if I do not give an account of certain figures and groups in this simmering Washington gathering who have no official standing whatever and who are here in the unpopular role of qualifications and complications of the simpler concept of the Washington issues. They are not conspicuous absentees as are Germany and Russia. They come upon the scene, but they come rather like that young woman with the baby, who stands reproachfully at the church door, watching the wedding in the melodramatic picture. They are full of reproaches, and intimations of troubles yet in store. The other evening, for example, I found myself dining with a comfortably housed Korean delegation, and listening to the tale of a nation overwhelmed. Korea is as much of a nation as Ireland. She had so recent an independence that she has treaties with the United States, recognizing and promising to respect her independence. Yet she is now gripped, held down and treated as Poussin was in the days of Prussian possession. She is being assimilated by Japan. What is to be done about us? my hosts asked. One fellow guest thought nothing could be done because the Korean vote in the United States is not strong enough to affect an election. Amid the tumult of voices here, one hears over and again an appeal for something to be done for Korea. Such appeals are addressed chiefly to American public opinion, but it is also felt to be worth while to let Britain know, at least to the extent of letting me in on this occasion. I was introduced to an editor of a Korean paper which had recently been suppressed, and I listened to an account, an amazing account, of the freedom of the press as it is understood in Korea under Japanese rule. Yet it sounded very familiar to me. Indeed, I had listened to much the same story of suppressions, rather worse suppressions, the night before. Then I had been the host of two friends of mine, Mr. Hussein and Mr. Sapre who have had extensive experiences of suppression in India. They are both here in much the same spirit as the Koreans. Whenever I talk to Mr. Hussein, we always get to a sort of polite quarrel in which he treats me more and more like the Indian government in its defense, and I become more and more like the British ascendancy. I adopt, almost inadvertently, as much as is adoptable of the manner and tone of the late Lord Cromer, and say, yes, yes, but are you ripe for self-government? These gentlemen say frankly that the British rule in India has displayed so much stupidity in such cases as the Amristar massacre, and the recent suffocation of the Mopla prisoners, and that its complete suppression of any frank public discussion of Indian affairs in India is so intolerable that it is becoming unendurable. Everybody is talking of insurrection in India now. Nobody talked of it three years ago. These have been three years of stupid firmness. Now that that dinner party is past and gone, I can confess that I think Mr. Hussein's argument that, under British rule, India has no chance of getting politically educated, because she is prevented from airing her ideas, 
and that if her discontent is incoherent and disorderly, it is because of the complete suppression, completer now than ever before, of discussion, is a very strong argument indeed. India and Britain cannot talk together about their common future if India remains gagged and without ever a chance of learning to talk. If a break comes in India, it is likely to be a bad and hopeless one because of her lack of worked-out political conceptions, due to her long mental restraint, while all the rest of the world from Korea to Peru has been trying over political self-expression. But it is interesting, and perhaps not quite so pathetically hopeless as it seems at the first glance, to find these two men in this city, side by side with the Koreans, trying to get something done about it, at the Washington Assembly and a day or so ago I had a call from another unofficial delegate, a Syrian Moslem, who wanted to talk over the education of his people, also fretting beneath the wide surfaces of the Treaty of Versailles, with the ambition to manage the affairs of Syria for themselves. And as another case of the stifled voice here are the representatives of the Cantonese Chinese government, who made a scene the other day when the Peking representatives went into secret session with the Japanese. There was an assembly of hostile Chinese shouting, Traitor! and things, apparently very disagreeable things, in Chinese. Here again there is a clamor for attention that gets short shrift from the official conference. And, lest these stifled outcries should fill the American reader with self-righteousness, I will note in passing that the entrance to the second plenary conference was besieged by an array of banners reminding us that that evidently most gentle and worthy man, Mr. Debs, is still in prison for saying his honest thought about conscription, and also that I have received, I suppose, over twenty letters about an unfortunate young Englishman, a minor poet named Mr. Charles Ashley who seems to have come into America looking like a person of advanced views, to have done some publicity work for the IWW, and to have been caught in a gale of indiscriminate suppression, and given a sentence of ten years for nothing at all. The offence of Mr. Debs, and the alleged offence of Mr. Ashley, I may note further, were a premature craving for universal peace, which might have weakened the will for war. All these suppressions of opinion strike me as black sins against civilization, which can only maintain itself and grow and flourish through the free expression and discussion of ideas. The temptation to ride off from the main business of the conference, upon some quixotic championship of Korea, or India, or Mr. Ashley, is therefore very considerable. But when we consider that all these particular injustices are incidents in that general disorder which permits the aggression of nation upon nation, and which blinds justice with cruel passion and urgent necessities of war, these cases appear in a different light. Korea and the suppressed and imprisoned Indian liberals and Mr. Ashley are like people hit casually in a great combat and the immediate work of the ordinary combatant is surely not to specialize upon these special cases, but to go on with the general fight for world peace, which will render the atmosphere that created these particular wrongs impossible. Japan is attempting to crush and assimilate Korea, because Japan wants to be bigger and stronger, 
and she wants to be bigger and stronger because of the fear of war and humiliation. Britain holds down India and is reluctant to loose her hold on Ireland for the same cause. If she relax, someone else may seize and use. America also crushes out the anti-conscriptionist because otherwise he may embarrass the conduct of the next war. In the present conference, the liberal forces of the world may be able to establish a precedent that will at once reflect upon the position of both Korea and India, and to open such a prospect of peace as will make the release of Messrs. Debs and Ashley inevitable. But that can only be if we stick to the main business of the conference, and do not fuss things up at present with too much focusing upon Korea or India, or the case of Mr. Debs. The precedent that may be established through the conference is the liberation of China, when China is militarily impotent and politically disordered, not only from fresh foreign aggression, but from existing foreign domination. The establishment of such a precedent is a thing of supreme importance to all men. If the conference does not get so far as that, so far as to establish the principle that an Asiatic people has a right to control its own destinies, and to protection while it adjusts these destinies, in spite of the fact that it cannot as an efficient power defend that right, it will have made a very wide step indeed, not only toward world peace, but toward a general liberation of Asiatic peoples held in tutelage. It is so important to mankind that that step should be made, that I grudge any diversion of energy to minor injustices, however glaring, or any complication of the issue whatever. So far as the conference goes, I am convinced that stick to the freedom of China is the watchword for all liberal thinkers. By the extent to which China is liberated and secured, the conference will have to be judged. Even the vast problem of India cannot overshadow that issue. End of Part 22